This week on the Backtable podcast. 90% of job is um, urethroplasty. Every day we do 4 to 6. Every day now, patient comes at 8 o'clock in the morning. I ask him, have you come for consultation or surgery? He says, for surgery. I say, don't eat or drink anything. We do blood investigations. We have a full pathology lab, X-rays, ACG, 2D echo, lab, everything. 1 o'clock, I can make an incision if he's fit. And we do surgery with whatever money he brings in because this is my hospital. I'm a modern-day Robin Hood. I take it from rich and give it to poor. Welcome to Backtable Urology as we start another episode in Legends in Urology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at backtable.com. Today I have with me the internationally known urethral reconstructive surgeon, Dr. Sanjay Kalkarni. He is talking to us today from his hometown of Pruni, India. It's an absolute pleasure to have him here on Backtable Urology today to share about his life experience, his wisdom, and just to hear his story. Thank you, Jill, for invitation. Well, let's just jump right in. So tell me a little bit about what it was like growing up in Pune, India. So Pune is about three hours drive from Mumbai. The current population is about 7 million and is considered Oxford of East. It's famous for its educational institutes. And I grew with my parents in a one-room home with three brothers. So my father was a photographer with the government and my mother was a homemaker. So I'm the eldest of the three brothers. My second brother is an engineer and third one is a lawyer. And currently, I live in what's called joint home. That means in our home, we have several or eight bedrooms. We have three couples, three brothers, their wives, my nephew and his wife. So four couples live in the same home. We have one kitchen and one television. So this is happening for the last 70 years. I'm 70 years old now. Wow, you've been doing that for 70 years. Does it feel like a tight space or are you just totally used to it at this point? No, no. when I grew, that was a single room home. Then we had a two room home. Then we had a four room. Now we have an eight bedroom house. So, so this is a progress that we have made over a period of time. But as a child, up to schooling, we grew up in a single room. So everybody was came from middle class and that was my schooling time. And what were you guys into as kids? Was it soccer? Yes, uh, in India, cricket is famous and very popular. So we used to play cricket on the road with a bat and a ball. There are other sports like kabaddi, which you may not know, other Indian sports, and football. We call it football rather than soccer in India. And it sounds like you came from it. You mentioned the town was the Oxford of India. So did most kids go into college? And was that pretty typical? My father, because he was a government servant, had multiple transfers around the country, but he refused all his promotions because his uh, kids, three sons, could get good education. And then uh, we went to a good school and my mother took care of our studies and three brothers excelled in their studies. And were you ever not thinking of going to college or you're for sure this is what I'm going to do? Was there any other path that you ever considered? No, no. Going to college was essential. All of us are highly qualified. Our wives are also highly qualified. And this is the future. Education, education. My mother was very particular about it. And was it always, did you know you always wanted to do medicine? Or did you kind of find that later? No. When I was in school, there's a girl next door to me and my mom said, she's going to be a doctor. Why don't you become? So 
it was <laughs> so then i became a doctor for her sake otherwise uh, for the first year first year first month i had taken admission to an engineering college but then i changed over to medicine and you attended medical school in india and then you trained in england walk me through like kind of the path to become a doctor that you experienced so once you finish your schooling we have to do two years of college and then if you get good marks and i was seventh in the rank uh, being admitted to the uh, bj medical college in pune we had about 200 students per batch and uh, my admission year was 1971 and i passed out in 1975 after passing out with flying colors i was third in the class and then i was very good i just want to tell you the story that in my second year of my medical schooling i did the first surgery of uh, steenman pin interesting and then being a large general hospital which is about 2000 beds i used to go and read ecgs this is i'm talking about medical school i used to go to the pathology lab and take blood samples because there are a lot of people having injection i used to give injections do suturing as a medical student then once i finished my medical school we had one year of internship and three years of surgical residency that i did in km hospital in pune and my teacher was so called a parsi parsi that means their origin comes from iran and then he was one of the finest surgeons i have ever seen in my life and then i learned lot of surgery from him three years of surgery after finishing surgery i went to england for in 1981 for urology training and i spent five years and before going to england i was married to my wife dr josna who is a surgeon so she is the senior most laparoscopic surgeon of india today okay well we'll talk a little bit about that sounds like a very busy time so let me ask finished your time in india which sounds like you got a lot of early experience and interacted with some great surgeons that influenced you how did you end up deciding to train in england like what and was that a hard adjustment like moving from india to england with the climate and the culture like how was that decision made so there are two things in 1980s the urology training was restricted to delhi chennai velour only few centers there was no center in mumbai or in pune where i i could go and all the seniors uh, in mumbai and pune used to go to england point number 1 and secondly when i was in second year of surgical residency when i was about 25 26 my teacher surgery teacher was learning trp i said if he is learning at trp at 50 because the only differentiating point between surgeon and urologist for trp at that time there is nothing else no pcnl no urotroscopy so i said i must go and learn trp so i went to england in 1981 so you went to england and i noticed when you were there so it sounds like you could see what was coming and you wanted a bigger and better experience that you trained or had the privilege of training with dr richard turner warwick was that the 80s at that time So first of all I want to tell you that I spent 2 years with Michael Heal who was a student of Richard Turner Warwick okay and that was a peripheral hospital in Crewe which is near Manchester and at that time I learned the technique of what called penile inversion when my guru he used to do cysto urethroprostatectomy for multifocal TCC of the bladder he used to do cystectomy from above I used to do urethrectomy from below through a perineal incision with penile inversion And then in 1986 i got a chance to work as a first assistant to father of urethroplasty richard tanwarik and that was a turning point in my life what was it like training with him 
I mean, certainly you hear a lot of people say his name. As Leonard Zenman used to talk about him all the time. He clearly had a huge influence on people. So what was he like? Uh, yeah, so he, he was a great, great surgeon, first of all. And suppose he's doing urethroplasty. I ask him a question. He would leave the surgery and answer the question for 20 minutes. That cannot happen today. <laughs> so he, uh, first of all, he was a superb surgeon, great innovator, inventor. And he was doing fantastic surgery. I was lucky to work with him and then learn the basics of urology. The, whatever he has written in that time still stands the truth of time. Still true. It's funny you say that. I was going to ask you, do you still do things or anything you learned from him the same way? You know, what are the principles that he really impressed upon you or you took away from? So, so when he was operating in anti George Webster had yet to invent the crudal separation, inferior pibectomy, and supracrudely rooting the next steps. So, no, he, Tanuvari used to do bulbar urethra mobilization, and then if the prostate is or the posterior urethra is too high for PFUI, pelvic fracture urethral injury, he used to do transpubic urethroplasty. And I still do transpubic urethroplasty in young girls with fracture pelvis, and we get a lot of these girls. After earthquake in Nepal, the girls were sleeping and the wall fell down. You understand? Something like that. And we still do some transpubic urethroplasty in young boys with a pie in the sky bladder or double transection. Yeah, I mean, many consider him sort of the forefather of reconstructive urology. Do you? Yeah, I do. Sounds like it. Sounds like he was amazing. And then was it always your plan to move back to India and specifically Pune? Yeah, so my wife actually, I loved to live in England. I would have stayed there, but my wife said, no, no, I want to bring my girls, my two girls born that time. I want to bring them up in India. So we moved back to India beginning of 1987. So there wasn't a lot of discussion. She said, we're going back to India, and you said, okay. Correct, correct. No, secondly, I wanted to spend with my parent, time with my parents. This is an Indian tradition to look after your elderly parents. Of course, of course. I think it's always fun to hear about other aspects of, of medicine or, or things when I'm interviewing somebody. And I, I noticed, and you mentioned this earlier, your wife is a surgeon and she did a lot of laparoscopy and it sounded like you did too. What were some of the cases that you guys did, you know, back in the, what, the 90s? And did you guys yeah. ever operate together? Yeah. So this is interesting. I went to AUA for the first time in, in New Orleans in 1990. And at that time, I, I went ahead of Josna, my wife, and then I went to Pittsburgh to stay with my cousin. And then there was this, uh, there is a big ad in the newspaper saying that laparoscopic laser cholecystectomy. I w wondered what this is. And this is before 9-11. So everything was very, what to say, no restrictions of any kind. I called up the hospital and said that, can I come and see this laparoscopic laser cholecystectomy? And she said, yes, come and see. So I went and watched this. There was no laser, but lap coal. And then I asked my wife to join me. We underwent training. This is in Oklahoma at that time. And then she learned laparoscopy when there was no clip applier invented. Very interesting. And then she bought the instruments. And she is the first female surgeon in India and second surgeon in India to do laparoscopic cholecystectomy in 1990. She started India's first animal lab in 1991 and trained hundreds of surgeons. So I used to hold the camera when she was doing lap call initially. I was an assistant. <laughs> <laughs> Did you do any laparoscopy yourself or just assist her? 
So initially, there was only laparoscopic cholecystectomy, then appendectomy, and urology was started by Ralph Lehman. So I went to Ralph Lehman little later in St. Louis, Missouri, and learned techniques. But at that time, nephrectomy was not a common operation. So I still do some laparoscopy. My favorite surgery is laparoscopic pyeloplasty. And in about a month's time, we'll get the Da Vinci robot, and we will start operating on the robot. Here's what I'll tell you. After you start to use the Da Vinci robot, you will think that laparoscopy was fairly archaic as far as sewing. So that's really exciting. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. Well, wow. If we transitioned into some more of some major milestones, you've done a lot of really creative and innovative things about establishing centers. So I, I wanted to ask you about some of those. So one of them was you established the Center for Reconstructive Urology in 1995. What made you do that? Why, why did you do that? And what was your original vision and thought for it? So at that time, when first of all, I want to tell you, when I was a surgical resident, there were two emergencies every evening. One was injection abscesses because the general practitioners or the GPs used to use syringes, which were glass syringes, and they were boiled. So many patients had injection abscesses. Secondly, in the evening, we had to do abscess drainage. And secondly, there were patients for urethral dilatation in the minor roti. The patient lying in a lithotomy position, you have the dilators, there is a kidney full of blood there. You understand, patient is shivering in pain. So that was our vision of dilatation in 1980s. So uh, when I started doing, because I was trained by Trenovaric, I started doing urethroplasty and the results were far superior. So I said that we must establish this center. So we started this center in 1995 and I named it as a reconstructive urology center. And uh, it was difficult to do surgery initially because references were far and few. Most of the patients were poor, but I kept on perseverance and patients paid. Now in our new center, uh, last month we performed some 60 urethroplasties in one month, six zero. That's incredible. So did it meet your expectations? Was it mainly focused on you providing the care or was it a training center or did that come later? No. So what happened, we established a small hospital because my wife and me, we could not go and do surgery other places. There too much of equipment required to be shifted, including laparoscopy, because many hospitals did not have laparoscopy equipment in 1990s. And then uh, this was a small hospital with two operation theater and 20 beds, which we ran till December this last year. And we performed about four to 500 urethroplasties in the center. And then we thought that we want to go to a bigger place, so we opened a 100-bed urology center 1st of January this year. Yeah, no, we're, we're definitely going to talk about that. So it sounds like you started it because of the way that urethral disease was being treated was, I'll use the word maybe barbaric, and then you had this huge skill set you learned from England that you brought back and, and started to do that in your hometown of India. So 10 years later, you opened up what I think is named the Kalkarni School of Urethral Surgery in 2006. And tell me about that. How was that different and what were you thinking when you established that? Uh, in India still today, live surgery workshops are very popular. So I was invited to many places to teach them how to do urethroplasty. And then people wanted to come and learn. So if somebody comes and stays in Pune for seven days and I may not have enough cases, then his time may be wasted. So what we did, we started collecting patients once a month on a Saturday, Sunday, because urologists are busy Monday to Friday. They come to Pune on Friday evening and Saturday, Sunday, we used to perform eight to 10 urethroplasties in two days. 
So they come inside the theater and they watch it. So that's how the program started. And about eight to ten urologists came inside the theater each time. So this has been happening since 2006 till now. And then in 2010, Dmitry Niklauski from Syracuse came as a foreign visitor for the first time from Beaumont Hospital. And then it became popular around the world. Oh, so at first you were training physicians within India, and now it's an international training site. So how many surgeons do you think you've trained? If you had to guess, how many people have come and visited you guys at this? In India, maybe about 1,000, maybe about 1,000. But around the world, almost every country at present, I have two Mexicans, two Oops. from Philippines, and one from Russia. So Sanjay, I'm going to ask you a question. Can you tell right away who's going to be a good surgeon and who, who's not? Yeah. Uh, it's like everybody cannot be Michael Jackson, you understand? So there are some inherent skills and some can be acquired, but some inherent skills have to be there. And when somebody is operating, then I can immediately tell whether he's a good surgeon or not. Recently, I just want to tell you that I have four fellows, two from GORS and two from local university and the girl from Bogota, Colombia, and secondly from Argentina. I told my other two boys that the girls are doing far better surgery than you. I think we have the same feeling here in the United States. So it's a worldwide phenomenon, apparently. That is amazing. Congratulations. That's really quite an accomplishment. So tell me a little bit now about your recent adventure. And you call it the Eurocoal Hospital. Is that correct? Yeah. And that opened up in just December of, of last year. So not even a year old yet. So tell me about that. And how you guys, again, took another major step in opening that hospital. So what happened, we had 20 beds and two theaters, and then the work was increasing. I had many associates, Dr. Pankaj Joshi, other people. So at present, we have five full-time urologists and four fellows. So nine urologists work in our hospital. So uh, in 2016, we started looking for a plot to build a hospital. It took us two years to find the right size, what called say space, and then, then COVID came in, but then it was delayed a little bit. And then we opened this 100-bed urology hospital. And Euro is urology and cool is Kulkarni. And in India, cool means a home. So this is home of urology. Oh, that's clever. And you do everything there, like stones and urodynamics. And is it a full center for all of urology needs? Now what happens, our... 90% of job is um, urethroplasty. Every day we do 4 to 6. Every day now, patient comes at 8 o'clock in the morning. I ask him, have you come for consultation or surgery? He says, for surgery. I say, don't eat or drink anything. We do blood investigations. We have a full pathology lab, X-ray test, ACG, 2D echo lab, everything. 1 o'clock, I can make an incision if he's fit. And we do surgery with whatever money he brings in because this is my hospital. I'm a modern-day Robin Hood. I take it from rich and give it to poor. So we can do surgery for free. I don't have waiting list. That's amazing. That is totally amazing. So tell me, you're actually, are you running the whole hospital every day, day in or day out? Or do you have anyone you answer to? Or is it you and your wife? Or how does it, how does it work? No, me, this, this is a private limited company which I own. We have five operation theaters. And then we have two theaters for urethroplasty, one for endourology one for laparoscopy robotic and one for transplant, penile processes and artificial sphincter. And we have 10 bed ICU, 10 bed dialysis. We will be starting kidney transplant. We'll be starting robotic surgery. What happens, my juniors, the Pankaj Joshi, 
does a lot of erythroplasties along with me. But my other colleagues, they can't leave endo-urology because they have not enjoyed the, what you can say, thulium laser, stone crushing or TUR, bipolar TRP. So we don't do a lot. We may be doing one TRP a week, one or two urotroscopies a week. Not a lot, but laparoscopy we do reasonable, so we will do more robotic now. Oh yeah, I mean, that's very exciting. I, I think the robot, you're going to love it as we, as many of us, I mean, I do a lot of it as we do here in the States. So it'll be exciting to see how that goes there. I was going to ask you actually about the finances. You mentioned the patients bring whatever money they have. Is there any sort of private or government insurance or is it just the patient pays whatever they can bring? So, so in India, we have three different kinds of systems. One is there are government hospitals, then there are medical colleges. So there is something called as Ayushman Bharat. That means uh, this is a government of India sponsored scheme. Half the population is covered under the scheme where they get treatment free of cost. But my hospital doesn't give treatment of free of cost because I'm not included in that scheme yet. Second is what we call charitable hospitals where the surgery is performed at a reasonable cost. And thirdly, this is a corporate hospital. Mine is a corporate hospital. This is a, something like a five-star ultra-modern hospital. And then two things can happen. Because I own it, I can do surgery completely free. But normally, insured patients, which is about 50% of our patients, and some patients pay from their own pocket. We get patients from Africa, from Middle East, everywhere. I was just going to ask you that. Has it become kind of a boutique place where people fly in to have surgery with you from around the world and now fly out? That's true. That's true. Wow. They stay in Pune for three days. They come, uh, they spend one day in investigation. We do surgery. 48 hours later, they go home. Incredible. Incredible. So you bring a lot of people to learn and train from you. Do you have the opportunity to learn and train from other people? Or are you kind of set in your ways and this is how you're going to do it? No. So whenever I go to AUA, EAU, SIU, I meet my colleagues. We are a, as you are a part of the our urology, urethroplastic group, where the group is about two, three hundred experts. We meet and we discuss about each other. And for the last many years, I have been conducting live surgery workshops. So where my mentor, Dr. Guido Barbagli, will come, Professor Mundy will come. Dr. Jerry Jordan has been to my hospital. Howard Snyder came to my hospital. Then Alan Morey, Richard Santucci, a lot, a lot of American urologists have come and done surgery in my unit. So you always, you're still willing to learn, which I love, and pick up little tricks from other surgeons. I know we've all picked up a lot from looking at your videos and things that you've popularized. Another idea is when the when the young urology group comes into ten people inside the theater, on my right shoulder is a 4K camera, and there is a 70-inch 4K TV in my theater. So even if you're standing next to me, it is better to watch on a TV rather than or directly to the patient because of magnification you see better. It's like using surgery with loops. And a young urologist will may ask me question and that will stimulate my mind. I tell them that when we discuss about the ult, because there could be multiple ways of treating the patient. So if somebody suggests and it is better for my patient, I'll change immediately. I'm willing to learn at this moment. I love that. I love it. And then what happens, I will do two urethroplasties on the patient. And I will not do the third one. And then when Guido Barbagli will come, Professor Mundi will come, I will offer those, my failures to them. So the important point is my ego does not come in the way of treating my patients. Perfect. Definitely the right mindset. Certainly something I, I feel the same way about. 
Let me ask you a little bit about some of your awards. Clearly, you've been the president of lots of societies. You received an award that I wanted to ask you about that really stood out to me. It's called the Dr. B.C. Roy Award. Can you tell me about that and how, how you got that award? So Dr. B.C. Roy was a very important doctor. He was the chief minister of a state called Bengal, and he developed a lot of uh, services. in. So Government of India named the highest award the Government of India can give to a doctor, they named it after him, Dr. B.C. Roy Award. He was born and on 1st of July and he died on 1st of July and he was trained in England. So this is the highest award one can get from the government of India and it is given by the President of India in the Rashtrapati Bhavan, which is the President's Palace. So I want to tell you that the Indian President's living space is about 300 acres, that means it's a large place, some three, 400 rooms. This was built by Britishers and it is the finest building in the world. So I took my mother, my brothers and their wives. It's like going to White House to receive or going to Buckingham Palace to receive the honors from the president. It's a rare honor. It sounds like it was an amazing experience. And was that yeah. for your work in urethral reconstruction? So to develop a new subspeciality in medicine. Got it. And speaking of that, we were exposed to a lot of different types of medicine. You mentioned it early. You had a lot of exposure when you were a medical student and different surgeons. But what what is it about the urethra that you've chosen to really focus your career about being a urethral reconstructive surgeon? So what happened, once I started doing urethra initially, first 10 years from 1987 to 97, I was doing lots of anastomotic urethroplasty for bulbar urethra, which was common at the time, transpubic urethroplasty, occasional flaps. There was no vocal mucosa. So 1997, I went to England where Professor Mundy, George Webster and Barbagli, I met them and I was introduced to this dorsal-only buccal mucosa technique. And then I picked it up and brought it to India. And it was very good for bulbar urethra. So I said, why not use it for penile urethra? And then I had some patients where I had to use it for panurethral structure. And I, in 1983, I had learned this technique of penile inversion in England for urethrectomy. So I applied the same technique and I published my first video year 2000 in AUA. Then 2009, I published the one-side dissection technique. After Barbagli published the muscle sparing technique in 2006. So everything had a little history. The important point in my life is around 2002 when Jerry Jordan, Barbagli, Mundi came down to Pune for a major, my first major international workshop. Dr. Barbagli asked me, Sanjay, what is your interest? I said, laparoscopy and urethroplasty. He said, Sanjay, forget about laparoscopy, keep on doing urethra. That was the beginning of turning point in my life. So you must have a mentor. What is important is Roger Federer, the greatest tennis player, still has a mentor, has a coach. So everyone should have a coach and he should be able to tell you in your midlife what is right, what is wrong. And you should be able to accept it. So Bagbargalik gave you your marching orders, right? He said, nope, you're going to do the urethra and that was it. Okay, love it. Do you think there's more to be discovered in urethral surgery? Some people say, hey, we as a field have done a really good job and kind of mastered it. Or do you think that, you know, we still have opportunity in urethral surgery? I think this is the branch where a lot of new inventions are coming up compared to any other subspeciality in urology. So I think that majority of the urologists around the world are endourologists. So the future of anterior urethra, posterior urethra will remain same. 
because the road traffic accidents and except for endoscopic railroading surgery will be there for anastomotic urethroplasty the structure may be simpler for anterior urethra what i think for bulbar urethral structure one may do dviu and one of the dimitri nikolaskis what you can say liquid buccal mucosa or injectum some kind of cells manufactured in the lab or maybe some totipotent cells may be used to regenerate the urethra locally hypospadias structures again will remain so there there is some progress being made and this optilium balloon which is again advances so something new will come up definitely but it will be more endo urological rather than open surgery got it so you feel like the field's going to continue to advance but in more of a minimally invasive way correct and are you yourself interested in stem cells or tissue engineering or are you doing any work with that so we have a lab where i am now in lonara so what we did we took a small piece of specimen from the cheek under local anesthesia sent it to lab they grew into multiple buccal mucosa cell culture so i saw dr barbagli do ventrally buccal mucosa making the incision and then applying this uh, cells through a, on a substrate which is absorbable so i thought why not why to make an incision so we made a, we took a knife doing dviu and injected the cells with a glue inside the initial results are reasonable but we need long term follow up So it is something you're looking into and actually you're right a lot of people are and you can see a world when we will just make an incision and fill the valley or the gap with stem cells or something some nutrients to try to re- have regenerative healing so I I totally agree with you. And you talked a little bit about the robot I was going to ask you about that. You may like it so much you may hang up your your retrial skills and then just pivot over to the robot once you get it. Are you really interested in that or is that for somebody else you think? I'm interested in Li Zhao's work because he has done fantastic robotic reconstructive urology for prostate bladder neck area uh, as the number of robots increase that will be my work mainly so the whatever I'm doing transmibically or those complications of prostate cancer surgery or radiotherapy I'll be able to do a job according to what Li Zhao and others are doing he is a leader perfect so you already have a vision of how you're going to utilize the robot in reconstructive urology even for myself it is such a great tool so i'll be excited to see you know how you utilize that and how your practice grows so you mentioned before some of the people that influence you including your peers turner work is there anybody else in, in your career that really was like pivotal in helping you develop outside of urology or inside professor mundy is also very important in my life because I consider him another of my mentor and then the way he performs surgery we learn from I have seen lots of videos of George Webster and then he is a fantastic surgeon Jerry Jordan I have seen him personally in India so I think we pick up points from every urologist Jack Mackenich we considered a father of American urethroplasty America is very really fantastic place because Jack Mackenich Jerry Jordan George Webster everybody Lenny Zinman All, all, all important people. Significant contribution. Definitely. So let's talk about your significant contribution that I think we say, we'll say to each other as reconstructive urologists, oh, did you do a calcarny? So it's become a commonplace word. And that's to your credit for one of the techniques that you've definitely popularized. So what was the original calcarny urethroplasty? Yeah, year 2000, there is a video in AUA, which you can buy, I'm just saying, but it's available. so perineal incision penile inversion 
and then mobilize the urethra circumferentially like barbagli for penile and bulbar urethra. So that was considered a little too aggressive. It was not popular. And then applying, opening the urethra dorsally and then uh, applying a graft dorsally and closing and then pulling the penis into normal position. That was initial surgery. But uh, the urethra was separated away from the corpora cavernosa completely. So that was considered a little too aggressive. But when I published the second modification, which where I mobilized urethra only on one side, then the dorsal neurovascular supply to the urethra on the patient's right side was kept intact. I did not mobilize the urethra circumferentially, and then it became penile inversion, one-side dissection, dorsal only became popular. And then it was published in Hinman's Atlas of Urology, and then it became... So Sean Elliott also came down to Pune, I would say, uh, Dr. Kalkarni Sanjay, like that is what most people would say, the penile inversion, unilateral dissection for panurethral. And you've already talked about the big advancement in the technique. And I think now people, when they refer to a Kalkarni, often they just mean unilateral blood preservation for the urethra. Would you agree? I agree. I agree. Because it can be used for penile, bulbar, and for panurethral structure. Single surgery can be applied to three different places. So in an opposite kind of direction about technique, are there techniques that you used to do that you would never do again because they just didn't work and just you abandoned them? I don't like perineal urethrostomy, okay? Because what happens most of the time, perineal urethrostomy is performed for structures which are distal to bulbar urethra, mid-bulbar onwards. And then in India, what happens? We have patients who have proximal bulbar, bulbar membranous Structures. So, if you have a flap which you can insert inside, your diversion is not proximal. Diversion is distal to the problem. And doing dilatation of perineal lithrostomy is a trouble. Secondly, what happens is, as you grow, as a patient grows older, he has to sit down. So, sitting down and getting up becomes difficult because he and then uh, he cannot uh, pass urine in a in a public place. He has to sit down, pull his trouser down. He has to find a toilet. I don't like perineal throstomy. I, I do it only after surgery for for penile cancer. Great. So you're an anti-perineal throstomy. I get it. For lots of cultural reasons, it's difficult and hard. And yeah, those things need to be considered. Do you ever use it as like, gosh, I've operated on this person four times and we just can't get them open? Or would you rather have a super pubic tube instead of a perineal throstomy? That's very rare. That's very rare. So I told you, I will do two urethroplasty. Third one, I will keep for my colleagues. Okay. Sounds good. <laughs> Give offer, offer them the best answer. And then suppose it fails, then I ask the patient to do self-cath. So there are some patients. So what's the indication of self-cath? Patient is unfit for surgery. Patient refuses surgery or after multiple failed surgeries. Got it. That's your preference. Okay. When we talk about technique, are you a stickler for where the surgical knot goes? When you're putting down a dorsal buccal graft in a urethroplasty, do you care if the knot is on the inside or the outside when you're sewing it down? Do you think that technique matters? So actually for dorsal only, it does not matter a lot. But when I do anastomotic urethroplasty, Richard Tanawarig used to say that principle of plastic surgery is less fibrosis. So not in the lumen versus not in the tissue not in the tissue causes more fibrosis because you have a number of throws. There is a bunch of suture material inside tissue. So what he suggested, if the knot is in the lumen, for anastomotic erythroplasty, it will fall off. So not in the lumen, 
is ideal for anastomotic rhythmoplasty, according to him. Got it. So you like to put your mouth on the inside anytime you're doing an anastomotic rhythmoplasty. Have you adopted much of the non-transecting urethroplasties, or is the scar just too dense that that's your most trauma patients or crush injuries, so it's not quite as applicable? So in our unit, suppose I do 600 urethroplasties, I may transect the bulbar urethra not more than six times, only when there is urethral trauma. Otherwise, we use this non-transection technique, and then we have introduced this Zoshi step, my associate, where we don't excise anything. We just pull the dilated lower urethra to the upper urethra and just put sutures there. We call it Pankaj Joshi step, which is before Mundi's mucosarenosmosis step. Okay, so you're making an incision and then just pulling the tissue back together. And creating a wide urethral plate. Otherwise, what happens? Suppose the, there is a short structure which is 5 millimeter in length and only guide wire goes inside. That means the urethra is only 3 French. And if you don't take care of the narrow urethral plate and apply buccal graft dorsally, then the 3 millimeter two edges will close down and the graft will remain outside the urethra. So you have to take care of the narrow urethral plate. If the structure is short, then Zoshi step or mucosal anastomosis. If the gap is longer, double phase buccal mucosa. So you guys are still progressing your technique, which is which is great to see. I think many of us are similar that we rarely transect the urethra anymore unless there's just so much dense scar that we're forced to do it. Do you have a favorite surgery? Of all the different surgeries that you do, is there one that you just really love doing? Any type? I like posterior urethroplasty because I am I'm really good at that. My average time for posterior urethroplasty, including crudal separation, inferior pubectomy, is about one hour. Incredible. And, and sometimes you have to do a pubectomy and you still get it done in an hour? That's about an hour more. An hour more. And how often would you say that when you do a posterior urethroplasty, you're having to go through the third and fourth step? You know, we know you mobilize and split the corporal bodies, but how often do you have to do a pubectomy or a corporal rerouting? So in India, my pubectomy rate is around 50%. And then supracrural rerouting, there are specific indications. I may be doing it about 3% of my patients. I will give an example. There is an adolescent boy, age 12 or 13, and then his penis is not fully grown yet. And then he comes with two failed urethroplasties. Okay, he comes with a supra-baby catheter. Each time you transect the urethra, it becomes shorter by one centimeter. Now, if I go third time, the anastomosis is under tension. At that time, I'll do supracrural rerouting rather than substituting that big gap with a pedicle prepucial flap or a tube because there are two anastomoses and a skin-lined urethra which will form a diverticulum. So I will take a risk of failing, but I will do supracrural rerouting in a young adolescent boy, but I don't do it routinely because the urethra gets engulfed in a bony tunnel. Yeah. Sanjay, I think you have a really large experience compared to many of us with pediatric urethroplasty cases. So I guess my question is just globally speaking, do you feel that if they have severe hypospadias or they have severe disease as a child, we should be as aggressive in reconstructing them or should we wait till they go through puberty and so we don't run into some of these issues that you've raised. So do you have an opinion on that or some advice for some of our colleagues? So unless one is really a hypospediologist, a real expert like Snodgrass or somebody like this, like Miro, then he can do urethroplasty for hypospadias. Otherwise, doing surgery with high surgical failure rate and fistulas 
is a trauma to the child and then uh, I think it's better to refer the patient somewhere else. You can do surgery at whatever age you want, but doing surgery for distal hypospedias is mainly cosmetic, like a coronal, subcoronal. It's, there is no functional importance if the penis is straight, unless the meatus is narrow. I fully agree. I guess the question I was trying to get at it, is there any benefit sometimes to letting them go through puberty and grow and develop prior to doing you know, a third major reconstruction. That was what I was trying to ask. I agree with you. Then secondly, what happens, We I have patients where multiple hypospedia surgery will be done. Now the man is married, has children, and he comes with the stricture later on. I do first stage urethroplasty now, Johansson, and he's happy. So he goes back to his original hypospedia after childbearing is finished. An interesting circle of life, right? <laughs> yeah. He may not want the second stage because his penis is straight, he can have sexual intercourse and then he has no problem of passing urine and no repeated UTIs. Yeah, When we were at Leahy, we looked at this when I was with Dr. Zimmon and Alex Vani was out there and about 25% of patients, as you said, did not go on and have their, it reconstructed. So let me ask you this, what advice would you give to a young surgeon to how to be excellent, how to kind of find their passion for surgical technique or, or types of surgery? What advice would you give to a young surgeon? No, one must be obsessed with what you call excellence. And then you should, one should go and visit centers of excellence. There are so many centers of excellence. I give you so many names in America like Jack McKinney, Jerry Jordan, and now the current generation leaders. You should go and watch them surgery inside the theater. That's very easy in India, but may not be easier in America because you need a lot of tests to be done. But um, attending live surgery workshops in India is becoming very popular. Currently, I am president of Urology Society of India. And this year, I have attended many workshops for stone surgery, for laparoscopic, robotic, urethroplasty. So we have to go and pick up points from everywhere and then go and see. I always wanted to go and see somebody who has invented an operation, how he could think differently and why I can't do that. So this year in AUA, I gave a talk in plenary so what was the topic of my talk? So this is SIU lecture in Chicago. If we all follow guidelines, then who will invent? So I tease the American audience saying that how many urologists undergo TRP? Rare. PCNL? Even rare. So what we advocate to the patient, we are not willing to do on ourselves. And then if you think that you are the patient, if you are not willing to do something on yourself, you may think alternative out-of-box thinking. And that's an invention. Yeah, that's where innovation can come from. I, I fully agree. And you may see in one of my talks, and I'll quote you, I love that, obsessed with excellence. And I'll put Sanjay Malkarni. So reflecting back, when you think about the field of urology and you've seen it change and grow with laparoscopy and robots and all the changes in urethral surgery and stem cells and buccal graft, you know, does anything really stand out to you as being really exciting or is it just in general you're an innovative person but does anything stand out to you on how the field of urology has changed? I think it has changed for the better. It is changing continuously. I really want to see young people and my favorite is Dmitry Niklowski. His thinking is completely out of the box and then the Pankaj Joshi is there. There are many, many more in America and then they will take it further. I have an interesting quote. When two doctors agree the progress of medicine is stopped. So we can disagree and then we can find alternative pathways of treating the same patient 
and both could be right. I fully agree. That's how we progress the field forward by having discussion. So let me ask you a final question. It's been really fantastic to get to interview and talk to you about your life and your work. Would you work a little harder, a little less, or do you think you got it just right? Clearly, you've had an amazing career, so many highlights on a national, international level. And the beauty of it is it just kind of all came to you. It wasn't planned. It just, you just went for it. You had that creative mind. So what do you think? Would you do it the same again or what? Would, or would you change anything? So I would do the same again. If I'm lucky, I've been able to go to 50 different countries to demonstrate and teach urethroplasty, including Germany, Italy, many places around the world. So making friendship around the world was vital. And the disease pattern in Africa is different from what we see in America or South America or Canada. That's point number one. Number two is go for centers of excellence, visit them. And then I have been a visiting professor to more than 20 American universities. Now, next year, I'll be going to Mayo Clinic, the most important hospital in America as a visiting professor. This is an honor. So the work will speak, provided you want to give the best possible to the public. Great. Well, thank you, Sanjay. It's been a pleasure to interview today. What an amazing story. To our listeners, I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Thank you, Jill. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at underscore Backtable on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable is hosted by Aditya Bagrodia and Jose Silva. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon, with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz, with support from Devante Delbrun. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Administrative support provided by Jimmy Lee Thanks again for listening and see you next week.